The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. Church, I know that you know this, but we are every week blessed to be joined by people in, whose, uh, in who English is not their primary language, that they come here, but they speak a different language as their heart language, and many that the Lord has blessed to come our way in these days speak a particular language from the continent of Africa called Kenya Rwandan. And this morning, um, we will, for the first time, we want you to be aware why Faustine is in the drum booth. He's not going to hit the cymbal during my sermon. Uh, he is in there to translate, and there will be people in, in the room who have um, the earpieces in to hear the translation. And so we are very excited this morning to be able to do that. Uh, we praise God for the technology that makes that possible. Uh, and we are praying, and we ask you to join us in praying that the Lord would use this uh, to, to deliver His Word to more people in their heart language. That is our prayer. Uh, this morning, we are beginning a new series in the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. Um, and what we're going to see as we, um, as, as we look through this, the, this, this whole book this year together is that the Lord knows what we need, even when we often think we need something else. And we're going to see that theme again and again and again. And the title of the series is The King We Need. The King We Need. And this morning, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 28. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and I want to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. 1 Samuel Chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children. But Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Let's pray together. Lord, we believe that you are speaking to us this very moment through the preaching of your word, and uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to receive in faith the word that you intend to deliver through the blood of Jesus, through his resurrection, through the spirit that now indwells your people. Lord, we ask you to speak to us, to move among us to transform us, to birth faith in us, to lead us to, war to walk in a manner worthy of God. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it is pretty evident, and most of you know this, that I am a book lover. I love books. I like to read books. I like to hold books. And yes, I even like to smell books especially old ones. And if you come to my house or if you come to my office or even if you come to my car, you will see that there are books usually 
everywhere. And over time, I've been in ministry now for a number of years, and, and over time, I've accumulated quite a library. And most people walk into my office and they see all those books and they just go, whoa. And it's just a lot of books. And you may think there's no way that one person possibly needs this many books. And you may be right about that, in fact. They haven't, the, the hoarder show hasn't come to my house yet. So, but you know, when I look at all of my books, I don't just see a pile of books, I also see a story my own. <laughs> I can look around my library and I can remember when I bought a particular book. I can see a section of books and I can remember different phases of my life where I got really interested in a subject. In fact, the other day here on the church staff, we all share the same church Amazon account and everybody sees what everybody else is buying. And Josh said, hey, pastor, why are you buying so many books about Nazis right now? And to be honest with you, it's because I just listened to a podcast on the rise of the Nazis, and I'm fascinated in a bad way by how a whole entire country, including churches that were supposed to be devoted to the Word of God, could have fell for that, could have gone and followed that wicked ideology. And so I'm, I'm interested in that right now. And you know, some of those phases, I, I would say, yeah, I remember that phase. It was a formative phase of my life, and those books helped me understand it. And some of those phases, I'd rather soon forget. Some of those phases and the stories that my books tell is, are embarrassing. One such is what I call the life hack phase. There's one particular section in my library where you'll see titles like this. Maybe you've heard of some of these. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Good to Great. Getting Things Done. And you may like some of these books, and it's fine if you do. I think that there's a lot of wisdom in them. There are a lot of sound principles in them. But when I look at these titles in my library, it reminds me of a phase of my life where I wasn't searching for God, but I was searching instead for the right technique, for the right formula. I was looking to be more productive, more efficient. I came to a point in my life where I thought, if I could just figure out the right way to do it, if I could just figure out how to organize my life and structure my life in the right way, then everything's going to fall into place. If I could just make a few key changes, fix a few bad habits, everything's going to work out. And church, I don't know if you knew this, but the life hack is actually a pretty dominant way of thinking about the world today. I would argue that it is probably in the West and Western culture the dominant way to think about the world. We put a lot of focus on finding the right methods on finding the right techniques, on finding the right formula. This even impacts the church. As soon as a church grows, say a small church becomes a big mega church, and we think, well, praise God, he's moving. But what, what happens after that is that the, the pastor has to write a book so that all the other little pastors in small churches will buy it so that they can get the formula, so that they too can reproduce the technique that he did so that they too can grow a huge megachurch. Church, that's not the way the Lord works. And I'm afraid that this way of thinking often infiltrates into even our private lives and the way we think about God. I've heard people say these kind of things in the context of the church. Well, I just wish that you had the right program, the program that fits what I need in this moment, or I just wish that you would give me a list of what to do. It's so hard, this life of faith, and I wish you would just spell out exactly what I'm supposed to do. Many of us long for that, and yet when we read the Bibles, the Lord doesn't give us those lists. There is no step-by-step -step manual. That's not the way it works. Real life sooner or later, is going to throw your technique out the window. What we're really after when we're looking for those techniques 
as a way to control the outcome. We just wish that somehow we could figure out the method so that we knew exactly what was going to come out on the other side. If I input this data, if I put these principles in place, then I can be sure, I can be guaranteed that at the end of this process, my life is going to look exactly the way I want it. That's really what's often driving that. Here's the issue, church. Almost every problem we face involves other people. Almost every problem that we face involves relationships. Almost every problem that we face, primarily, I wouldn't even say almost every problem, every problem we face has something to do with our relationship to God. And here's the truth. Relationships don't work off technique. How to win friends and influence people doesn't have any standing in your relationship with God. When we open up the Bible and we start studying the book of 1 Samuel, the first thing that we're going to notice is that it is all about control. It is all about power. It is all about leadership. In other words, the book of 1 Samuel is all about this question of how do we get things done? particularly the question of, if I belong to God now, if I am a part of God's people, do I need to think about my life in a different way? Do I need to go about getting things done in a different way because I believe that God is king? Often it's a power control struggle. Are we content with God being king or would we rather take matters into our own hands? Are we okay trusting God, this difficult life of faith that God calls us to live, or are we going to try to snatch control back and figure it out on our own without God and just hope that God blesses what we're doing at the end of the process? At this point in history, Israel is in a weird place, and I need you to understand this because I think often we think of Israel and we think of one thing, but at this point in history, we are between the exodus and the establishment of David's kingdom. And so Israel is this struggling, nomadic group of people that have just settled into their new land, and yet they do not have the kingdom established yet. There is no king at this point in time. There has never been a king on the throne for the nation of Israel. This first Samuel comes in history right after the book of Judges. If you've ever read the book of Judges, I will tell you, your kids are going to ask a lot of questions as you go through that one with them. One of the refrains in the book of Judges, and this is stated four different times, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel, so therefore, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And when I read that verse, I'm reminded of my first job. My first job was at a CVS pharmacy. I made $5.15 an hour. High schoolers, be thankful. And we had one boss, Mr. Wayne, and he was the man. If Mr. Wayne was there, everybody did what they were supposed to do. But we had an assistant manager named Jason. And if Mr. Wayne was gone and Jason was there, it was party time. Nothing got done. And you could apply this same principle to CVS Pharmacy. On those days when the king wasn't there, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you can see right here, it illustrated how important it is for the people of God to have godly leaders in place, in homes, in churches, in government, wherever it is. It all falls apart without godly leaders in place. And so, as a result of this, God's people are not fulfilling their calling. They are fruitless. 
They are faithless. They are struggling. They are barely getting by. You could almost say that God's people are barren, which is interesting because the first figure that we meet in the book of 1 Samuel is a barren Israelite woman. And here we are introduced to a family, and in this family we begin to see a pattern of how God typically begins to get things done. And that's what we want to know, isn't it? I'm a believer now. I'm a follower of Jesus. How does God get things done through me? How does God get things done in my life? How does the mountain move? And we see that here. Three ingredients. The first one, verses 1 through 8, desperate nobodies. We are introduced to this family, and and the first thing we see in verses 1 and 2 is their lineage. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. And we read that, and you think, well, that's just names on a paper, and sure it is, but for an Israelite, those names were so important because those names were the tracing of the lineage from Abraham to the present day. So we look at this man's past, and what do we see? We see fruitfulness. We see God fulfilling his promise, and we immediately see that he has not one but two wives. By the way, I just want to note this. Not everything that is described in the Bible is prescribed in the Bible, okay? That's really important. I think sometimes we mess that up. We see like, well, it's in the Bible. Listen, do not come to me, young men, with a plan to marry two wives because you saw it in 1 Samuel. It is described. It is not prescribed. It is an offense to God, actually. This was a different day, and we could get into that, but it's just it's peripheral here. He has two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And so we see right here in these two verses this quick transition from fruitfulness in his past to barrenness in the present. One of his wives, Hannah, doesn't have any children. And then we get some more details on her predicament in verses 3 through 8. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. There was no Jerusalem yet. There was no permanent temple yet. This was the tabernacle set up at Shiloh, and this family was faithful in that they went every year to Shiloh to worship the God at the tabernacle that was set up there. And who served there? It tells us there were two sons of Eli, priests, Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters to sacrifice. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb He loved her. He genuinely loved Hannah. He did not see Hannah as simply a means to prolong his family line. He treasured her and valued her. And it is demonstrated in his gift to her to sacrifice a double portion. But there's conflict in the family. Verse 6, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Because the Lord had closed her womb, she would tease her, she would make fun of her. Here was Peninnah, the woman who had sons and daughters, and she would look to her rival, Hannah, and say, Ha, you do not. What have you done? How is the Lord punishing you? So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Hannah is sad. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? He tries to encourage her. He says, I still treasure you. I still love you. Now, this condition 
of being barren, of being unable to have children, is a condition that many women in this very room have experienced. It is not an easy condition. It is emotionally extremely difficult because it is one of those things that reminds us as human beings of our powerlessness. And we often wonder questions like, I'm sure what was going through Hannah's mind, have I done something wrong? Why can't I have children? And often, often there can be envy associated with it, right? Where you look at someone else celebrating being pregnant and you think, well, why can't I be there? And here in the very home with Hannah is a woman who is using it as a club to beat her over the head with. Can imagine the emotional turmoil that she was going through. But listen to me. It's interesting because Hannah's name means favored one. And yet here is a woman who I'm sure didn't feel very favored. There's more significance to being barren for the people of Israel even. So so yes, there is an emotional thing going on here. And I think the problem, church, is that we often read this story and we only see the woman emotionally taxed and we try to get into her experience and that's present and that's good, but there is something else going on here that is bigger, that has more to do than with with just Hannah as an individual woman. I want you to think with me about this. The people of Israel had been chosen by God and called to multiply, to be fruitful, to have children. In fact, God's very own promise rested on his people faithfully obeying that calling. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 315, what did God say to the serpent? He said that the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. And then he finds Abram and he makes a promise to Abram. He says, Abram, though you're old and your wife is barren, and she's way past the age of having children, she is going to conceive and have a child, and that child is going to be the key to all of my future promises. And what happens? Barren Sarah becomes pregnant. And that child's name is Isaac. And Isaac gets married to a woman named Rebecca. And again, Rebecca is barren, can't have children. And again, God comes and visits her and she conceives and has a child. And one of those children is named Jacob. And Jacob marries a woman named Rachel. And again, Rachel is barren, but again, God opens her womb and she has a child. And we see a pattern beginning to develop of everything looking bleak and it beginning to look like God's promises are going to fail, like like what God has said is not going to happen. And then again and again and again, God keeps showing up and he keeps reminding us that he's the one in control, not us, church. He's got this. He's not a slave to our probabilities. He's not restricted by the laws of nature. His word is powerful. He's the one who opens wombs. And so when we begin the book of 1 Samuel and we are introduced to Hannah and her barren womb, church, we need to understand that this isn't just about Hannah. It is also about Israel. There are two stories happening. Hannah is fruitless, but Israel is fruitless as well. Hannah is being provoked by her rival, and we don't know this yet, but we're going to see as we continue to read that Israel is also being provoked at this time by their rival, the Philistines, who look more fruitful, who look bigger and better and more wealthy than Israel. A story, and any Israelite reading this story would have known this, a story about a barren Israelite woman becoming pregnant would certainly have been interpreted as a sign of God about to move. Because that's how God did it. But you know, it's really amazing to me because this is such a quiet, obscure scene. 
we get into the details of a random family, an obscure story about an obscure woman, and there's nothing remarkable happening here. And if we're not careful, church, we will make the mistake that we make so many times in our own lives, and we will wrongly conclude that if we can't see God moving, if we can't see Him doing something huge and fantastic, that He's obviously not. Church, that's a lie. I met Billy two weeks ago right here at Ashland Community Church. Billy came up to me, and his story is amazing. I'm going to leave it for him to tell you all the details, but I want to give it to you from my vantage point. He came up to me after the service. He said, hey, I enjoyed the service. I'd like to meet with you to talk about prayer. And I said, well, that's an odd thing for someone to say on the very first time I met them. You know, usually they want to ask about the church, but he wants to talk about prayer. I said, fine, let's do it. It took us till this past Monday to get a time together. Billy walked in, we began talking, and I began to learn that Billy met someone where he worked who told him about our church because he found out that Billy lived in Oldham County, and he said to Billy, well, you need to go to Ashton Community Church. So Billy had just moved recently, he and his wife, from California to here because they were just searching, I believe, because God was leading them the whole time. And so they get here to this church, and guess what I'm preaching on, church? Tithing. <laughs> Praise God, right? Exactly what you want to happen when you're going to have a, someone who's not yet a believer come to your church, right? But Billy sat down across from the coffee shop and said, hey, um, I want you to know that when you were speaking that morning, everything you said was right exactly for me. Church, the Lord is the one who is sovereign over his word. He is the one who's moving. He is the one who's doing it all. We are merely vessels. And this guy that knows us, Brady Gray, um, walks into where Billy works, and he sees a church on, on Brady's shirt, and he begins to ask him, and Brady just says, yeah, go to Ashton Community Church. So right there, Billy just came here the first time, came in here, and he heard that. I met him Monday. I began to explain the gospel to him. I told him about Jesus. I just simply laid it out, and I kid you not, every word I said, I could see it go right into his heart. He said, I'm ready. And right there in LaGrange Coffee Roasters with people all around us, Billy Crook called out to God to save him. And we baptized him today. Found out later that Billy's mother has been praying for him for this to happen for years. Church, that's how it works. You don't write that story. I wouldn't have written that story. I, I'm not the one. It's not because of me and my magnetism. It's not because of me and my, my brilliance with words. It could have been anybody. It could have been any of us. It's God using vessels, weak vessels, imperfect vessels, often failing vessels, but that's the way God's always done it. And church, that's the way he's going to do it again and again and again and again. You can say the same thing about Paige's story. And you know, when you really think about it, you can say the same thing about yours. It starts in quiet desperation. But I want you to see where it ends. Uncommon faith, verses 9 through 18. So what is Hannah going to do? In verse 8, we see that she is sad. She's not eating. Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. This is so key right here, church, because here's a woman in her most desperate moment and in her most desperate moment, what does she do? She turns to the Lord and prays. She turns to the Lord and calls out for help. 
I believe that it's in these moments where there's turmoil and chaos in our lives, it is in these moments that we find out who we really are. We had an incident on a baseball field one time where a player did something really foolish and got thrown out of the game. And his dad said after the game, well, that's not who my son really is. Just the emotions of the moment got to him. And my response was, actually, I think it probably is who he really is. You see, because it's in those moments, church, it's in those moments of crisis, it's when things start hitting the fan. That's when we find out. That's when all the facades go away. That's when all of what we're trying to do to please other people fall by the wayside. That is when we find out, who am I really? And here's Hannah in utter distress. And we see who she is. She's the person of faith. She calls out to God. She prays. It's interesting, and and this is so fascinating to me. There's these details. Like, why does it tell us that the priest Eli in verse 9 was sitting on the seat beside the doorposts of the temple of the Lord? Like, why is that detail in here? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why why do we need to know that he was sitting by the doorpost? Why is that important? And it's interesting because if we begin to go back and we, we, we begin to study this, we may see parallels, and let me give you two. In Genesis 18.10, when the angels come to tell Abraham that Sarah is going to have a child, Sarah is described in the same words as standing beside the doorpost. She, too, is in the doorway. Now think about Exodus. Think about the Exodus. Think about the Passover. Think about how Israel on the doorpost had painted the blood on the doorpost, and and on their way out into their new birth as God's people, they passed through the doorpost that was stained in blood. Doorpost is a sign of birth in the Bible. It is God communicating that He is about to open a new doorway, a new pathway. There is a new way out. God is in the middle of a new birth. And that's what we see happening here. But look at her prayer. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. This obscure, desperate Israelite woman calls out to the Lord of hosts and says, Lord, meet me in my affliction. Lord of hosts, the God who commands the angels She believes that the God who commands the angels, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, that that same God is interested in her life. Interested enough to come down and do something about her condition. And she makes a vow when she says that no razor shall touch his head. This is what is known in the Scriptures as a Nazarite. A Nazarite was a person who temporarily devoted themselves to service to God, but not in the temple. So think like a priest is in the temple, but a Nazarite would devote himself to the Lord, but outside the temple in the whole world. But unlike a priest where it was a lifelong devotion, a Nazarite was a temporary devotion. And while they were under their vow, they would not consume alcohol. They would not cut their hair. They would have no contact with the dead. And what Hannah here is doing She is not just devoting her child to the Lord for a temporary period of time. She says, Lord, if you will open my womb, I will permanently give my child to you. You see, her desire isn't just about her having a son. She wants to have a son 
because she wants to worship God. It's not just a private desire for a baby. She is connecting her desire to the kingdom of God. And look at what happens in verses 12 through 18. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, the priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. So you can imagine what this looked like. Here's this woman with her probably her eyes closed and her, her lips moving, and yet he doesn't hear any words coming because she is speaking to him, not audibly, but in her heart. Her, her thoughts are inner, but she's voicing them to God, and Eli doesn't know. And I want you to notice what he concludes in, verses thir- in verse 13. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Now, this church is actually helpful in understanding the state of Israel at this time, the state of the union. It's not good. When the priest can't tell the difference between a woman praying and a woman who's drunk, that's not a good sign. And yet, that's what we see happening. And Eli said to her in verse 14, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Here this priest finds out she's praying, and as the representative of God, which is what a priest is, he speaks on behalf of God, and he says, may God grant your prayer. And based upon those words, she leaves no longer sad, ready to eat. She believes the word of God that has now been delivered to her. God is going to move. She doesn't need any further proof, church. This is what faith is, isn't it? Isn't this what it means to be you and me? Isn't this what it means to be a Christian? To continue believing the words of God, even at times when it may seem like those words are unlikely? This is illustrated over and over again in the Bible. She, at this point, she has no reason physically to think that God is going to respond. She only has the assurance of God's words from the priest. One of the commentators that I read this week on this fascinating passage said, God's tendency is to make our total inability His starting point. I want you to think about that with me for a moment. God's tendency is to make our total inability His starting point. In other words, it is only when we get so desperate that we are willing to give up trusting ourselves. It is only when we get so desperate that we throw the techniques and the rule books and the the, the formulas away and the how-to guides. And we just simply turn to God and we say, hey, God, I can't do this. I need you to do it. That is when God shows up. That's the same thing that Paul is arguing in the verses that were read earlier in the service from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is talking about the thorn in his flesh. And he says, my power, speaking from God, my power is made perfect in weakness. And human weakness. Why does God say that? Why does God choose to make His power known and demonstrated through human weakness? He does it so that everyone who sees what He's doing will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that no human being could have accomplished this, that this is only a sovereign God who could have done it. Paul says, therefore, when I am weak, then I am strong. God shows up at that precise moment when you lose faith in your own ability. And church, our goal is to live our lives in a state where we have lost complete faith in our own ability. It is always God. 
And you've got to understand that living in this culture in which we live, there are so many things that are trying to hinder you from living by faith alone in God, in Christ. All the messages we hear are telling us the opposite, that you need to trust yourself more, that you need to listen to yourself more, that the key to a good life is a life hack. The controls and the techniques and the things that you need are right here. You need more self-esteem. You need to think more highly of yourself. And all the while, Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you've actually got to take up your cross. Why does Jesus say that? Jesus says you take up your cross because what he means is if you want to come after me, you've got to die. Just like what we saw in the baptism. You've got to come to a point where you say, I am over because I believe that you will you will make me new and it will no longer be just me, but it will now be me and Jesus. And that's what Jesus is doing. You know, I thought I got saved before I actually got saved. I don't know if I've ever told you all this story. I was a college student in, at Troy University in Troy, Alabama. It was my first semester, my freshman year, and my life was just spinning out of control. I, I didn't like who I was becoming. And I woke up one Sunday morning and I said, I am going to church. And I drove my car to the first church I could find. It was a Baptist church. And I walked in, I listened to the sermon. And as soon as the sermon was over, I already had it in my mind. I'm walking down that aisle and I'm praying whatever prayer he leads me to pray. And this is it, I'm done. And I did it. I walked down the aisle. I went to the pastor down there and I prayed the prayer. And I went back to my dorm room and I said, I am not going out. I silenced all communication from my friends. So I'm not listening to y'all. I'm going to sit in my dorm room and I'm just going to read the Bible all day long. I don't even think I went to class, which I wasn't going to class anyway, so that didn't really matter. <laughs> and I sat there and I read the Bible and I read the Bible and I read the Bible and I read the Bible. And then eventually, after about two days of this, one of my friends stopped by and he said, what are you doing? Get in the car. We're going out. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll, do, I'll go out, but I'm not going to do anything. Well, that was a lie. And we got to where we were going, and I started doing everything that they were doing again. And before long, I was right back where I was. And it was only later, it was only later in my life where God really began to snatch all the things that I had previously trusted in away from me that I got to the point where I really was desperate enough to give up on myself. And I came to interpret that whole earlier experience as just what we see here, is me continuing to trust myself, continuing to think. And what I had done is I had turned the conversion experience into a formula to make me feel better. I can find purpose and meaning in my life if I find a church and walk down the aisle and pray the sinner's prayer and read the Bible. Then I will have everything in place like I need it. And church, you have to be careful even there because again, that is not, we do not come to God as a means to an end. We come to God because Jesus is our rest. He is our salvation. He is the one that we desperately need. And it took me a lot longer in God's wise and kind providence to bring me to that point where I was willing to do that. And maybe you're here today and that's you. I know that there's people in this room every Sunday who for whatever reason just refuse to let go, refuse to relinquish that control, and refuse to really believe that Jesus is Lord. And not only is He Lord, but He is a Lord worth my whole life being given to. And we are praying for you to get to that point of utter and complete desperation. We are praying that you will give up on yourself. We are praying that you will get rid of the illusion of control because the control that you think you have, you don't really have anyway. And that you will cling to a good, wise, sovereign, merciful God who has promised to save you through His Son, Jesus Christ. But look at what happens last. Total devotion. Verses 19 through 28. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, 
They did what husbands and wives do, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And so here it comes, God works, and and the name Samuel, which means the name of God, but that's not what we're referencing. It it sounds like the same word for asked. And so she, she names him Samuel because she says, I have asked for him from the Lord. God responds. She has been given the gift. The fulfillment of her request has come. Eli's assurance has been made good. And what's she going to do now? Verses 21 through 28. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him, which at this time was about probably three or four years. So imagine after three or four years of your child, now what's she going to do? She is going to take him and fulfill the vow that she made. Verse 24, and when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull. And they brought the child to Eli, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord, and he, Eli, worshipped the Lord there. Here's the pattern. I want you to notice this because this is the pattern that we see repeating itself again and again and again. Desperation, faith, grace, God fulfills, devotion. This is the pattern for you and for me. We are desperate. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We call out to God in faith. God, would you save me? I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that Jesus is Lord and King. I believe that Jesus is my only hope. Would you save me? Grace, born again. You are now in right relationship with God. After Billy prayed on Monday at LaGrange Coffee Roasters, he said, I don't quite know how to explain the way I feel right now, but it feels really good. And I said, Billy, listen to me. This is, this, this is so profound to me. I said, Billy, what you're feeling is that for the very first time in your life, God is not angry with you. You are in right relationship with God through Jesus. Church, when that happens, You feel it in your bones. God loves me. I can go through my life from this point forward knowing that I am in right relationship with God. Hannah receives the grace of God's response to her prayer, and she immediately responds with worship and devotion. She goes and she makes sacrifice. She speaks to Eli, giving testimony. The Lord has done this. And she points to her child, Samuel, and then she completely fulfills her vow. She devotes him to the Lord as long as he lives. She is going to leave him there with Eli to be pretty much Eli the priest's adopted son serving in the temple. And we know this. God's grace visits us, church, but God's grace was never intended to end with us. The moment God's grace comes to us, it begins a process where God's grace reverberates in us and through us and out of us back to others as we tell others and back ultimately to Him as others believe the testimony and worship the same God as others 
take a part of the same grace that we have tasted. That's the pattern. And that's what Hannah's doing. You know, it's interesting how this whole story prepares us to recognize God moving at a later point in history. When we open up our New Testaments and we get to the Gospel of Luke and we begin reading Luke chapter 1, we meet another barren woman named Elizabeth. She's barren too. And she has a child. And we learn later in Luke that John the Baptist, Elizabeth's son, did not drink alcohol. In other words, he too lived the life of a Nazarite, just like Samuel is. And just as Samuel's mission, which we're going to see as we study 1 Samuel, Samuel's mission is to prepare the way for Israel's King David to come and save Israel from their enemies. John the Baptist's mission is to prepare the way for David's son, Jesus, to come not just to save the people of Israel, but to save the entire world through his blood. Jesus comes as king to save the world. Samuel prepares the way for David. John the Baptist, son of a barren woman, prepares the way for Jesus. And all the ingredients that were present here in 1 Samuel are present there in Luke. Desperate nobodies with uncommon faith, willing to give total devotion. And church, that's the way it happens again today. We are a church full of desperate nobodies. Will we, like Hannah, turn to the God who saves and give our lives to Him to do whatever He pleases. That's our prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we come to You to confess, Lord, that we are sinners, that we are weak. Lord, that we often trust in ourselves when we have no reason to trust in ourselves and we should have given up trusting in ourselves a long, long time ago. And Lord, I pray I pray right now that if there is anybody in this room who has not repented and put their faith in Jesus to be saved, Lord, I pray that today you would save them. I pray that today they would come to the realization that they can no longer trust in themselves. Lord, please send your spirit down. We desire so badly to see more pages and more billies and more Joshes and Joes and Caseys, and more of all of us who, who were in the same exact position. We all start in the same place, Lord. We can't save ourselves. Would you come and save us? Lord, I pray you would do that. I pray you would do that through your church. I pray that you would call us to join you in what you're doing in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church.